people ever ask me, what's one of the trickiest parts about your job or what you do? Am I spending my time correctly? Should I be doing more dev? Or the product management, should I be doing even more customer research? Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Today we have a special guest, Nadia Odenayu. She is the founder and CEO of The Storygraph, and we're excited to have her. Welcome to the show, Nadia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Jeremy, where did you meet Nadia? So I saw you give your talk at Rails SaaS, and then you came and sat down and I said, wow, that was really great, or something like that. But at that point, I don't think I had really met you personally or anything like that. And maybe we were introduced at that point, but then I definitely remember talking to you at RubyConf Mini, like I guess maybe the next month. So kind of two conference exposures like back to back. And uh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, I don't think we properly spoke at Rails SaaS because I remember when we had a chance to have a proper conversation at Mini and you had mentioned, oh yeah, I just saw your talk at Rails SaaS. And I remember thinking, oh, you were there, cool. So we didn't have a proper conversation, but it was fun at RubyConf Mini because we did the informal 5K run. And then I remember just before I left the hotel to leaving Providence, you were in the lobby. So we had a little bit of a catch up then. So it was fun. I remember being totally blown away that you gave one incredible talk at RailSAS. And then you turned around and gave this other completely different topic, another incredible talk at RubyConf Mini. And I was just like, how is she doing this? Like, how does she come up with these amazing talks? Like, <laughs> it just kind of blew me away. The RailSAS one was amazing. Yeah. If people haven't seen that video, we will definitely link it in the show notes. Actually, any of your talks, we should, they're all fantastic. But your story at RailSAS was so inspiring and would love to talk about your journey there and some of the things from that today. When Jeremy and I first started planning out guests for this podcast, he recommended you. You were one of the top spots. And once I watched that your talk and like learned more about you, you're like the perfect example in my mind of when I think of indie rails. It's just you just hit all the spots where you're independent, rails, and like you grew this amazing business and were successful at it. And you stayed core to your solo and you like had all these amazing pillars of, of success. So I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate all your kind words. They mean a lot. When you gave that talk, were all those things already like something that you were adamant about? Or did you really have to sit back and say like, this is what made us successful or like this is what really guided our path? Just before we started recording, Jess, you mentioned my whole FIRE financial independence piece. And then you said, to clarify, I'm talking about your Rail SaaS talk. But I already knew that because that's the only talk I've ever done where I talk about me and my life. So to answer your question, it was a lot of hard work to put together that talk. And in fact, Jeremy, in response to you saying that I gave two very different talks, like a couple weeks apart, I actually wanted to give my Ruby mystery talk at Rail SAS. But my friend Saran Barak, who also spoke at Rail SAS and is an amazing person in the Ruby community, she said, now I know you do these great Ruby mystery talks. But if I heard that solo indie developer was going to speak at Rails SaaS and they gave me a talk, even if it was great, on Ruby Mystery, I would be disappointed because I want to <laughs> hear about the business. And I said, oh, but I don't do talks like that. And I've still got so far to go with StoryGraph. And 
I was just like, I don't yeah. know lessons I'm going to share. And it was like, enough of that. Come on. Million users. That's a story <laughs> yeah. in and of itself. And then I was like, oh, oh I guess I'm a one woman dev. I have a million users. Getting to one million users as a one woman dev. That's a good talk title, right? And she was like, that's the talk title. And I was like, great. It was my first talk where I came up with the title before the talk. Oh, interesting. <laughs> my first yeah. ever talk. And so kudos to your friend for bringing that out. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. She's incredible. She always helps me sense check things and refine my ideas. So I spend a lot of time on my talks, a lot of time sketching out the narrative arc. My biggest fear with speaking is that I don't want anyone in the room wondering why they're there. So to me, I'm like, I want to keep you entertained or interested and also have you walk away with learning something. So with my Ruby talks, it's often you have a fun story, but you learn a technical concept or you'll learn bits and pieces about working in a team or that kind of thing. So with this talk, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to tell my story, but then I'm also going to try and give you some practical takeaways because otherwise my fear with this kind of talk was I didn't want it to be a, and then, and especially because we're still in the journey, right? It's still, we've had lots of success given like tiny team, all that, but we're still in the journey. And so I needed there to be some takeaway. When I gave my first draft of this talk to Saron, I remember she said, okay, this is good. But when I think about what this talk could be, you haven't reached the mark. And it was a few weeks out. And this was going to be my first talk in three years because of the pandemic. I didn't do any of the remote talks, remote opportunities that were presented to me. And it was also my first time having to put together a conference talk with a successful business with a lot of users because we exploded in 2020. So all of my previous talks that I'd done, it was either with a nine to five or with my consulting business that I had. It was just a new way of having to navigate putting in all these hours in a talk while having to manage the product. And so I did another draft. And so it took several drafts to get to my three pillars, to feel confident in them, to feel like I would feel comfortable standing up and saying, hey, I'm not guaranteeing you success, but I pretty strongly believe in these things. And I think that if you follow them too, you will increase your chances of success. But it was a real struggle. And even just the slide deck, getting that to work, just to like really accompany the talk and take it to the next level. Yeah, it did. Yeah, no, I definitely remember that. For those that haven't seen the the talk and also as a like segue into maybe a little bit of your background, is it okay if I try to summarize it? You can fill in the blanks if I miss some stuff. One point you started a consultancy with a partner. Before that, you worked for a consulting company, Pivotal Labs, and I'm sure you, you grew a lot as a developer and that was a great company. And then you went on your own and with a partner and started a consultancy. And then it was going to be a product and consulting company, kind of a hybrid. And the products didn't quite take off like you wanted and you ended up stepping away from that. But what I thought was pretty amazing is that you said you had five years of runway. Yeah. So just to be clear on that, it wasn't that the products didn't take off the way I wanted. It was the partnership wasn't a right fit for me, for what I wanted. The partnership wasn't the right fit. And me and my partner had different kind of goals about approaching products, but also about the consultancy thing. And so the reason why I had five years of runway is because we were in a very lucrative contract with a bank and I wanted out of that. Whereas my partner was like, why would you want out of this? We're earning so much money. And I said, this is not why I turned down my banking job. I was going investment banking. So I had a job at Deutsche Bank, which I turned down. And then I did a camp to get into tech. 
And I kind of just had this vision of five, 10 years in the future where I'd have a lot of money, but like feel very unfulfilled and feel like I wasted my potential. And that's how I felt when I was on the cusp of graduating from college. It was the feeling of after having done the internship at Deutsche Bank, I was like, wow, if I stick at this, I'll probably make a lot of money. But in 10 years, am I going to be happy? I feel like I could do so much more. And I feel like the banks and consultancies will always be there. And if it fails, if I can't figure out anything in the next year or two, then I can get a job at a consultancy or banking place later. That was kind of what I told myself. So I just saw myself getting stuck through the back door in banking, but also in a worse job than being a banker. It was being in tech in a bank, which was awful. (laughs) Even worse (laughs) than just being an actual investment banker. You must have felt like the the banks were just kept sucking you back, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I need to get out. So it was like, there was a benefit. The reason why there was that much money available is because my co-founder and I of that company, we were saving up the money to invest in an eventual product. It was a 50-50. So when I left, I just got half the money in the bank. And so that was my five years of runway. Well, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's yes, amazing. That's a great runway. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. great thing to have, especially for someone like you who has plans to start their own business, start their own product. And so that's what you did. You said you were going to use that runway to say, okay, now I have time to work on what I want to work on. And you had a couple of side projects like All of us have side projects. And did you really think that there was like something to them or were you just like, I'm just going to kind of throw it out there and and see what I get? Before I get onto the side projects I had, I just want to make one point about the money and the financial independence, because I worry that some people will listen to that and hear, oh, she got five years of runway, so easy for her. But before I even got the five years of runway, before I even left Pivotal, when I was earning 35,000 pounds as a junior developer, I had already started the concepts of I'm going to start saving and looking into financial independence so that I can at some point invest in myself. So when I got my first pay rise while still at Pivotal, my expenditure did not increase. I just had more to put away because I was happy with my lifestyle. So it was like, I don't need to spend this extra. It just went straight into savings such that when I had the windfall, it wasn't like, wow, I suddenly have all this money. Yay. It was like putting that away into an index fund. And my life continued the same. So I just want to make the point that it was, I started the practices early and you don't have to be earning a lot of money to start the practices of saving a certain portion, budgeting such that you build up good behaviors such that when you do get extra money, it's not suddenly all gone. It's more like, wow, now I've got this extra disposable income and I can either like save it away to eventually get to the point where I'm living off the interest from index funds, or I can invest in something else or whatever it is. I just always want to make that point. Yeah. That's what's that term is called like lifestyle creep, kind of like scope creep in a project where you just like, you get a little more money, you buy more stuff. Um, But yeah, with that fire mindset, you are very conscious of your expenditures and your budget. And so that also played a part in that. That's a very responsible thing to do at the start of your career. Like are you just naturally a very responsible person? Or was it like, did you see something that like said, ah, oh, I need to do this because I don't, I want to avoid this or I want to have this happen in my life? I'm naturally responsible. And I think it was a combination of the time I had roommates and I knew I always wanted to live by myself unless I was <laughs> living with a partner. So I wanted to be able to afford living by myself in London. I always knew I was going to start a company somehow. I think I've always been entrepreneurial. So I think knowing that I had tech skills, I knew I one day I wanted the flexibility to 
not have to feel beholden to a job. You know, I followed some blogs like Monovator and things like that. And then also Saron's husband, Rob, who is also now my co-founder, he was very heavily into that sort of stuff. So when I started becoming friends with Saron in 2016, that's when I actually started putting my money away in index funds and setting up a spreadsheet where I could see how the compounding would work. And if I save this much, then this is how many years until I hit my number and where I can live off the interest. And also I, that's when I started using YNAB as well. And it's funny because like I've never been in debt, but if you would look at how I manage my money, you'd think maybe I was someone who'd been in debt before and was trying to protect myself. But no, it's just the way of making sure that I'm not spending more than I need to. And one other thing is there's, there's different approaches to how you do this. So some people it's, I'm going to save as much as I can and I might be miserable because I'm not spending money on X, Y, Z or whatever. The other way, which was I lived for a few months, looked at what I was spending and said, yeah, I'm happy with my life. Like I'm happy with my life. It helps that I don't like go shopping that much. I hardly drink. So these things mean that things that other people spend a lot of money on, I just naturally don't. And so when I looked at how much I was spending, I then was like, okay, so this is, I shouldn't be going above this because I've lived like this for like six months, whatever, I'm happy. So there's no reason for me to spend more per month on eating out or whatever it is. And so then it was like any excess gets saved. And then I would use that to figure out just key numbers into spreadsheets and be like, okay, do I want to spend a little bit more here or do I need to spend this much each month on that thing? And so that was my approach. But it was a mixture of knowing the kind of what I wanted to do in life, essentially be able to be independent and also influence of friends and people around me and blog posts I followed and things like that. That makes sense. And that's, I think, really good for people that do want to achieve that kind of freedom, like from a, an employment, nine to five employment, having that mindset, regardless of where they are currently, and then building toward that at some point. That's cool. So back to the timeline. Back to the this timeline. was <laughs> 2019 when you started StoryGraph? Yes. Yeah, so I had the two side projects, as you said, and I just always been really excited by them. So you said, did I think they were going to go anywhere? I always thought they were cool products. And there were ideas I'd had for years. But, you know, entrepreneurial people, we always have a few side project ideas. That's just normal. And so if anything, when it came to 2019, I'd spent a year working with my friend Saron and that didn't work out. So that was a second partnership that didn't work out. So when it got to 2019, I was kind of like four years of runway, two projects that I've been dying to work on for years. And I was very much like, I've done the kind of more forced, I'm trying to make this thing into a successful product. And I was just looking forward to being like, I've got time trusting that if I just follow momentum and follow things that interest me, I'll see where it goes. Worst case, I can get a job for years. Like that's how I was seeing it. Maybe three because I would be like, yeah, runaway would you feel is close to, enough to the wire. So essentially I was like excited by them, but I wasn't trying to be like, this could be a big business. And I certainly wasn't seeing my reading app side project, which was called Readlist then, as a Goodreads alternative. It was just a side project. In fact, the first version hooked into the API to get your shelves because it was just meant to be a companion app. It was just a small side project. Were you ever tempted to early on to do some consulting on the side or just like part-time? Or were you sort of dug in to the fact that I'm going to spend 100% of my time on these products? I wasn't because of the runway. Maybe, who knows, if it was a year's runway, it might have been, say I started this whole thing with a year's runway, maybe I might have felt like, let me see if I can get a side project that's a few days a week. But when you've got four or five years, it was felt like such a luxury. And I said, who knows when I'm going to get this kind of time where I don't have to work and I don't have any dependence. This is such a rare time. Like, it's just me, like, 
who knows when this will happen again. So I wanted to take focus 100% on being able to just enjoy that for me. And I had just moved into my, this flat by myself. So it was, I was finally living by myself, which I always wanted to do. So it was the perfect timing of like, let me try this and focus on me and my side projects. Was there any part of you or, or maybe even friends or family that were saying, you need to get a job. You shouldn't like go out on your own and do this. Yeah, that's great. You have this runway, but you're still early in your career. Whatever, you know, you should keep working. Was there any part of you that felt like that or had to like kind of fight back against that urge? Not because of the amount of runway. As soon as people heard the five, four year runway, everyone was like, okay, you'll be fine. It's just such a, and this was like, how old was I at the time? I was mid 20s or 27. I don't know. So people were supportive. If anything, the part where I had to like convince my parents that it's okay was when I wanted to turn down my banking job leaving university. Oh, That's yeah. when it was kind of like, no, trust me. But once yeah. I'd like, I'm going to like learn how to code and it'll be <laughs> fine, you know? <laughs> and, and I remember in particular my dad being like, what are you going to do? When I, when he, when my boot camp was three months or 12 weeks, he was mm-hmm. like, and what are you going to do after the 12 weeks? And I was like, I don't know, I'll get a job or something. I'll, <laughs> I'll start my own business. It wasn't until I got my first raise at Pivotal that my dad said to me, wow, this worked out really well. That's <laughs> funny. My first yeah. raise. That's funny. Um, Validation. I know. And it's funny because I remember the thing that finally convinced my parents to calm down was that I said to them, here's the thing. Always say that I can do anything, that I'm amazing. I shouldn't let anything hold me back. And I've got a great degree. I had this first class degree from Oxford, which I worked super hard for. And I'm saying, think about what you're implying by being worried by me turning down this one job for Deutsche Bank. You're basically saying that my degree, me as a person, everything counts for nothing if I'm going to be a failure, if I don't take this one job. I can literally apply for another job at any of these companies in a year. Like people take gap years and that really stopped them in their tracks and made them be like, (laughs) oh yeah, why are we, like it would be like a contradiction to everything we think and believe if her turning down this job is like the end of her life. And so that, I love that, that calmed them down. Yeah, that's such a great mindset to have as an entrepreneur who's sort of afraid to take a step out that you feel like you're risking so much that if you take that step that like you're never going to be able to get a job never or get a consulting or contract yeah. or yeah. like you're just going to fall off the end of the earth if it doesn't work. Yeah, but what are you really saying about yourself then? Right. I really like that. And also, this is why I chose to become technical because I won a competition to go to the boot camp. So I didn't pay. And I had a stereotypical idea of what a developer was in my head, which wasn't me. Didn't look like me. It wasn't me. <laughs> not in a, like a, it's not in a, I want to get in and they won't accept me. It was a, that's not me. That looks boring. I'm a sociable, chatty person. Developers just sit in basements and code all day. <laughs> and also I can never be good at it because I didn't start doing it when I was a child. I just, that's just genuinely what I thought. And so in the end, I decided to go to my boot camp. Because I said to myself, wait a minute, Nadia, you want to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so if you do this course, you'll know how to talk to developers. That was genuinely my thinking. Interesting. Yeah. When I got to the course, that's when I realized, oh my gosh, this is so incredibly powerful because everything is moving towards tech and the entrepreneurship is risky. So it's highly likely that some of your ventures will fail before you have success. And in the meantime, you can always get a job. So like really delve into this, Nadia. And this is why I also took the job at Pivotal 
because I was thinking after a 12 week boot camp, I could become an independent contractor. I genuinely thought yeah. this. And then I was like, oh, no, okay, no. <laughs> so then when I applied and t- took the job at Pivotal, that was my way of like continuing the boot camp, essentially. Yeah. Like I worked there for a year and a half to be like, okay, I've got the basics. Now I need to go work with people better than me to actually become a proper developer and be confident in my abilities. And what a great place. Like everything we hear about Pivotal is just like, they're amazing. And everybody that came out of Pivotal, that's pretty awesome. Can you believe that for my me as a one woman dev, I still use Pivotal Tracker, like so extreme when developers hear <laughs> this. Awesome. And like just you, like, yeah. And I point my stories and I, it's so ridiculous. I'm the product manager and the one dev and I use Pivotal <laughs> yeah. Tracker for me. What's your velocity? Three. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of bugs that I'm working on. That's the great thing about velocity, though. It's all relative, right? Exactly. A three for you could be a 50 for me. Exactly. So you started working on this project. And what gave you the the first signs of this is starting to go somewhere? I know probably like for you to share a little bit about you spent a lot of time talking to customers. And so I'm thinking that probably is what gave you some encouragement to keep developing, keep iterating. I would say that was the second thing that gave me the encouragement. The first thing was how I felt building a product for books because I'd never had this before. So I, at this point, I'd been developing for three, four years and it was cool. Like I got both the creative side and the mathematical analytical side. And I felt that coding and designing like programs fit into both of those sides. But with books, it was like, wow, it was like everything because I love reading. And I just was so excited to use this thing for me and for other readers to use it. So that was the number one thing, because as you pointed out, Jess, I had two side projects. So I was going to work on both a running one and a reading one. But once I started with the reading one, which was just on the first day I sat down, 3rd of January 2019, I was just like, well, I have to choose one. And so it was just the feeling of, wow, like I just have to build this thing. Like I really want to build this thing now. I just don't want to stop. I, I love building a product to do with books. Then I was like, oh, well, I hope other people feel the same way because otherwise I should stop building it no matter how much I love it if no one else is going to use it. And that's when I was talking to customers. And then I got that actual momentum of, wow, every time I do a set of user interviews, I'm taking away at least one thing that points me in the next direction. I think you had a term for that. You said it was founder product fit. Yes, it's not my term. It's a general term that is like well, in the yeah, startup. Yeah, the one that you used. Yeah, in the startup world. But that's, I felt that. How did you start doing customer research? Like, was that something you'd done previously with consulting or had you like just read a book on it or just started like trying things? What, what happened there? So already being at a place like Pivotal, in your teams, you've got the product managers, you've got designers, and you're just working with people who are at the top of their game in a lot of this stuff, particularly customer research. And one of my colleagues, who's now one of my best friends, Ali Blenkin, she was particularly amazing at customer research. And so as we entrepreneurs do, I brought her into my running app side project, which I was slightly casually working on now and again. And through doing that, she taught me more about what she knew about customer research and about putting together an interview script and knowing what the hypothesis is of each round and then the synthesis process. And then combined with that, at some point, I came across the mum test book by Rob Fitzpatrick. And so those two things meant by the time I came to working by myself, 
Oh, and also in the year prior where I'd worked for Saron, we were trying to take build new products to take off. And so we even had calls with Ali as well, where we she gave us feedback on our user interviewing techniques. So by the time it came to me working by myself, I had a few years of knowing how to talk to customers, essentially. And I've learned so much since then, including new techniques. At the end of last year, I did a new style that I'd never done before. That was usability research for redesigns. So I'm always like picking up skills and developing and building on what I know. But I already had decent experience to know what I was doing when I started my read lists, which became Storygraphia. That's cool. When I think about like my own journey or things I've built or tried to build, I think that's one area that I never wouldn't do. I didn't do because I wanted to just code. And so I didn't talk to customers. And now I'm starting to do a little bit of customer or user research for the first time. And it was definitely missing, but like, it sounds like working in space where people are at top of their game and using all those skills and seeing them do that. And then having close friends that could help you develop those skills. has been really valuable to you. That's really cool. For people that haven't done customer research and are building their own products, do you have any like major suggestions or like kind of big key things you'd recommend? Definitely read The Mum Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. And the whole premise of that book, the reason why it's called The Mum Test is because the whole thing is that your mom will always try and be nice and kind to you. So if you tell your mom you have an idea, they're probably going to be very supportive of it. But you want to get to a customer interviewing technique that's so good that even your mom couldn't lie to you, essentially. So I recommend that. It's a small book. You can read it in one sitting. And then just high level mistakes that I see people make when they approach customer interviews, which you can weave in once you've read the mom test. When you go into a user research round, have a hypothesis, have a question you're trying to answer. Really try and avoid any form of leading question at all. And this is super hard and I, it's taken me years, but I think I'm pretty good at it now. It's so easy to suggest or to lead and to make people say what you want to hear. I record all my videos now because don't try and take notes as you're interviewing or have someone else take notes because you will also just selectively hear things and take what you want to hear. And what I do is I record all of my interviews and then I watch them back. And sometimes Abby, who works part-time for Storygraph, does that now that I've trained her on how to do that. But I sit down and watch them back. And when I take notes, I try and take as much word for word as possible. I try and avoid summarizing what they say. And I try and just take word for word clips. There's try and get each round should have five to eight people. Five to eight is enough to get a general consensus. You want to spot patterns that three plus people have said. Fewer than five, probably not enough. More than eight, you have too much. Don't skimp on the synthesis. Sometimes you think, oh, it sounds like everyone was saying this, but actually do the synthesis because you might not realize certain patterns or you might not, something that you weren't focusing on comes out. And until you put everything down on paper and then group things into themes, you might not notice something because everyone said the same thing, but in a different way. Be open-minded. Just be prepared that because of this customer research round, I may go in a completely different direction or I might not build this feature that I really want to build. Those are some of like my high-level points and mistakes that I see people making or that I've made over the years. That's great. I love all of that. I'm doing a little bit of customer research right now and just thinking about like that advice is like very good. So yeah, that's cool. One other thing, they don't have to be long. I know other people have different opinions about this. I've read and I've seen other people have different opinions. I always book a half an hour slot for all of my interviews and most of my interviews are 10 to 20 minutes. 
ever since I've been doing StoryGraph from 2019 and I'm very customer research led. I know some people book an hour or talk for a long time because I have the hypothesis and I have the script. They are very structured and I always give the customer space to talk if they want to. But I keep it short for a bunch of reasons. One, they don't need to be any longer. It saves you time, especially when you're talking about being indie devs. Our time is very precious. We need to build the product and we can't be spending hours talking to like three customers. But also if you ever need to interview somebody or go back to them, if it was an hour last time, maybe they can't afford an hour again. But if you told them it was half an hour and it was 20 minutes, they're probably more inclined to jump on the call with you again because they know that it's just another 20 minutes. I can do that. Do you do any compensation for customer research? I was wondering about that. I was about to say, I don't. Okay. Some people have asked. Yeah. I'm a big believer in general for paying people for work, but it was one of those things where similar to like Instagram lives, it's not something that I offer compensation for. Yeah, I just think it's a customer survey. And I also do worry about incentives. Like if people are like, oh, I get paid to do this, then people might join to get the conversation, but they're not really having the pain point or they don't really use the product in the way that they are asking for. That's another good point, by the way. Whenever I do a research round, I identify who I'm trying to speak to. So it could be people who log into Storygraph every day. That was one round I did because I did not build my product to be used every day. But I was seeing that there were people tweeting being like, I use Storygraph every day. And I'm thinking, okay, the average person reads a book a month. These people that are coming in, I don't think many people finish a book a day. So (laughs) I was like, I need to figure out what it is about the product that gets these people coming in once a day, maybe it can help me improve the product for everybody else. And so I was very specific. I said, I need people who use it every day. And I had people who messaged saying, I mean, I use it every other day or a few times a week. Can I join? And I said, no. (laughs) And (laughs) imagine if I was offering compensation, would people be honest about whether they use it every day or not? Or would they say, yes, I use it every day so that they can get the money. People might have different views on that. And I've definitely had people who say, no, I'm not going to do it because you're not paying me. It's very, very rare. Thinking about this part, this aspect of your role makes me wonder, like, how did you figure out how much time to spend on the different aspects of being a solo creator, product creator, like development time, customer research, marketing? How do you break that out and how do you prioritize? If you ever ask me, what's one of the trickiest parts about your job or what you do? That's the thing. Am I, me as a founder, sitting back and thinking, and a CEO, am I spending my time correctly? Should I be doing more dev? That's often the one that I worry about. Like, should I be doing more dev? Or the product management, should I be doing even more customer research? All that. And at the end of the day, if I feel like I've not been doing enough dev, I will look at my calendar and I will try and carve out focus blocks of time. I always make time for customer research. Even when I feel like, oh, I kind of just want to like hurry up this process. I know that in the long run, it's going to serve me well. So I just go through it. And I think... Ultimately, it's hard to explain. It's naturally happened. So for example, I'll say, it feels like we're plateauing right now. Let me, for money, for example, our plus plan is not growing as much as I thought. Let me do some customer interviews with plus people. Okay, so now that fills up my calendar. So I'm not doing as much dev. Ah, it seems like it's just a nice to have right now because it's not targeted to any one type of customer. For my other research, I know that stats is a really good feature. So now I'm going to reposition the plus plan. Let me draw out the roadmap for that. Okay, I'm going to start doing development on that when I can. And because I don't have customer interviews, I have more time for development. It's hard to explain, but I definitely do sometimes worry, like, am I spending my time correctly? And sometimes I try to actively change it, but most of the time I just go with the flow. And basically when I don't have anything 
pressing that has a deadline, like either customer research or social media things or things like that, I will default to development. It's like if there's time and I'm working, it will be development. Otherwise, it's anything else to do with running the company. There's always code to write. There's always code to write. There's always that my pivotal track of backlog. Speaking of managing those tasks, at some point you brought on a co-founder. How did you pick a co-founder? Did you want a co-founder in the beginning? Was that always like in the plans? Did it just organically materialize? And what are your retrospects on that? I had those two failed partnerships and I'm never going to work with anyone again, but I am a very independent person. I was just so, with the four years of runway, my side projects, I was just looking forward to at least a year of just like being by myself and having to answer with nobody, answer to nobody. Exactly. I was really enjoying being in control and working with Saron, she had been solo and could newbie and it was working with her that made me feel like, and she's an incredible person, obviously she's my best friend. So like hundred percent, like respect and admiration is still there, but it did make me realize, oh, I can do this. It's the whole, you know, we're all just trying to figure things out and whatever. And it made me be like, oh, I can do this. Like I work by myself. And so I was doing that. And then what happened was, Saran and I actually hadn't struggled for a while after we stopped working together. And then we had kind of reconnected and were talking more. I had popped up on Twitter, on her husband's Twitter. And he started clicking around and he saw a recent newsletter because I was working solo. I started a news as a way to like have some accountability and just keep up some momentum with all the people I'd spoken to because I've been doing all these custom interviews, but then it was kind of like, okay, thanks, bye. And it was just me on my own. And I wanted some form of accountability. So he had clicked on those, read through all my newsletters from the beginning. There were about 30 published at that time. And then he had sent me a text essentially saying, hey, long time no speak. I was reading your newsletters and it originally started as a conversation because I was having some computer troubles in my last newsletter because I was using that to explain why I hadn't done as much in the last week. And he was telling me, you know, oh, do you know about carbon copy cloning? Blah, blah, blah. I didn't. Now I know about it and I've got it all set up. And then he said, I also noticed in one of your newsletters, you spoke about spending hours manually doing X, Y, Z. And I've just started learning machine learning on the side. No promises, but can I maybe try and see if I can automate this for you using machine learning? And I kind of was like, Okay, sure. I was a bit hesitant because it was like, you know, it was my thing and I was wary of, I had no money to pay anybody. And also, I, you know, it hadn't worked out working with his wife and I didn't know what, I didn't know what was going on. I was a bit wary about it, but I was like, okay, yeah. And then a week later, he's messaging me, sending me long emails about the results of this model that he's making. He was saying, oh, it's not good enough because... I'll give you an example. He was showing me like failure examples where his model had failed. And there was this one book that he classed a failure if it didn't match the labels that myself or Abby had given the book. So there was one book and he said fail because the machine had tagged it as mysterious, but we didn't. But I recognized the title of the book and I was like, Bob, that's a murder mystery. It should have been tagged as mysterious. <laughs> Your model has done better than like, has, like uncovered human error. So this is amazing. He said, if it's okay with you, I'd like to keep doing this. He had a full-time job doing his own thing. And I'm in the UK, him and his wife there in California. And, uh, you know, we were just exchanging emails. And then he said, I kind of at one point had to ask him, what I start getting suspicious now? I was like, what are you hoping for? I have no money to pay you. I don't know what you want. And at this point, I was like, I'm not giving up any equity of my company. So 
you know, and he was very much like, I'm just trying to help a friend. Like, I'm just trying to help a friend just the way, because I was very much like, and he was like, you helped Saron for years before you became officially involved. Remember, friends help friends. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, fine. And I said, what if I tell you to teach me everything you've done? And then I just say bye. And he's like, great, then I've helped a friend. And he did say, but I feel like you've got a lot on your plate and you don't have time to also learn all machine learning AI right now. I'll teach you because you can do anything. And I said, you know, I've got to be smart about this. The reason why I hired Abby as a part-time person to help is because I was doing a lot of manual work and I just said, I'm not coding at all. And so I was like, wow, with someone like Rob, I won't need to, because I was thinking I was going to have to get some form of funding because I said this kind of product, doing recommend personalized recommendations, having all the moods and all this stuff on the book, the type of business I'm running is not the type of business that you would say solo indie devs. It's just not. So even though I wanted to avoid VC, I was very much like, oh, maybe I'll have to go down that path if I want to keep building this. So Rob coming on board was like, wow, maybe we can stay indie bootstrap because he's willing to join for some equity to start. He's financially independent. He's the one that got me into all this stuff. So he's financially independent, him and Saron. So I don't have to worry about that. Like, I don't have to worry about a co-founder saying, I don't have money and like, I need to quit or I need to get money somehow. And so he worked on it on the side for some months. And then he basically, Saron was in London speaking at a conference. We had a conversation. He basically said, I feel like I want to join as a co-founder in exchange for some equity. I think like I can really help. And I already was wanting him to come on board. By this point, I'd gotten over any like fears of, is there something suspicious going on here? Like, And you and found that you probably had a good working relationship at that point. Yeah, we had a really, really great working relationship. And I think the difference is like with the, because in terms of like, there are clear like roles. The two prior partnerships I had were 50-50 or almost 50-50. Whereas this one was very much like, no, Nadia, like I'm 75-25. The responsibilities are clear and the positions in the company are clear. And even though, I see him as my partner in the sense of like, you know, I get advice from him and all that kind of stuff. It's clear that if there's a final decision that needs to be made, it's down to me. And we have our clear areas of responsibility. There's not kind of overlap. And so on top of that, we communicate very well and we can help one another despite not being familiar in each other's domains because we're pretty good at like being the other person's rubber duck. Like, okay, talk to me. And we're a bit better than a rubber duck because we can ask like certain questions that will help the other person think and say, okay, let me try that. Let me try that. So it's been just over three years and or three and a half years. And it's been wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. This is jumping back a little bit, but it seems like with Storygraph, you just like keep knocking it out of the park. And maybe that's just my perception. But I'm wondering if there are any projects before the Storygraph that helped you either develop your sense of taste around product development or your ability to build products that you kind of look to as like the building blocks that got you to this project success. Yeah, I think my experience at Pivotal, the projects I did, going through the motions of customer research, putting together a backlog, just being quite ruthless with priorities. And I think a lot I learned was not just from working at Pivotal, but from the individuals that I became friends with and I became close with. I took a lot of practices from them. And then I think also with my partnership, the first one I had, the one that gave me the runway, feeling the pain points of things that I'd read about that weren't good to do and then seeing them be realized, i.e. not talking to customers properly, kind of just building too much without having the clear validation that the idea is a good one. That also, it's like I've experienced the pain that way of being like, we've built too much and we should have never got this far because we just thought this idea was cool and now we're trying to go pitch it to customers. 
And then also working with Saron for that year and trying to, that was almost trying to build a new product off the ground. So I feel like they've had all aspects of working in an established company with dozens of developers as a consultant, trying to take things off the ground in a bad way, trying to take things off the ground in a much better way, but it not working as well. So there's, there's two, you can see what I mean, like failing, but doing the process well. Yeah. That helped. And also, I will say that there have been mistakes in StoryGraph as well. I remember in the first year, there were several times where one of my newsletters was called something like nice to have. And I remember it was a very like, it wasn't a very like happy newsletter because I just done a customer research round where the result was, no, nah, this is just a nice to have. I can live without it, your product. And I remember thinking, wow, if I just stopped working on this, like no one's going to care. There's no reason for me to keep working on it beyond the fact that I feel, but I don't want to stop. And I remember having a moment of thinking, it's not going anywhere. And that's where I, having that past experience of kind of just trusting the process and having that founder product fit feeling is what kept me going. And also the runway, because that gave me the luxury of having time. Yeah. So I think it's just past experiences, having past positive and negative experiences have helped me to just sense and gut check. And actually there was one time where we did, Rob and I had this very cool idea for recommendations and we just both got excited and carried away and we just spent a whole weekend just implementing it. And we hadn't had any feedback, either positive or negative, on our current recommendations. So we just, this is definitely an improvement. And the emails and messages we saying like, what is this? Change it back. I hate it. <laughs> huh. And it was really, and Rob actually said to me, Rob was like, Nadia, this is the first time we didn't follow your process of like properly doing the customer research. And this is what happened. So it was interesting for him to see as well. Because from his perspective, he was like, Nadia always has to do these interviews and talk to people. And like, <laughs> It takes time, but okay, I guess it's working. And then he saw the effect of yeah. he didn't. And, you know, sometimes it can work out. Like there's no right way. Some people just build things and it works out, sure. And in fact, four years in, there are times where it's like, I feel like you need to do customer research sometimes because I feel like I've developed enough of a product gut and intuition with certain things. Having spoken to these people for years and years or interacting with them somehow at least once a day via social media, there are some things where it's almost like, okay, I don't need to do a whole research round now. I think I have a sense of this is the direction this thing should go in. But it's also the whole point of even four years in, I still need to do it regularly. I still need to keep staying in tune because as time goes by, the industry changes, the publishing industry, readers change as well. And there's other things on the market. So you still need to keep doing it. But yeah, it's just experience and practice. At some point along the line, despite Rob's best efforts at convincing people that your progressive web app was a good thing, you decided you had to build a mobile app. I think most Rails developers would have went out and hired an iOS developer, but you decided to learn it yourself. That's amazing. What made you come to that decision? I mean, it was the whole part of the thing I talk about in the talk is keeping costs low. And the thing that runway, I see how valuable runway is. And I don't ever want to feel like, ah, oh, we have to raise money now. And also with the tools that we have available, Turbo, things like that, the promise of that is empowering the one developer. So it was, let me put this into practice. Also, there was a time in my life where I thought I was going to be an iOS developer that had like a suite of apps. And that was like how I made my money. I was just mm -hmm. a freelancer. That kind of, that was what I thought I wanted my life to be. So I had started learning Swift already. And so it was kind of like, already had that thing of being an iOS developer, had learned a little bit of Swift before Turbo came out. And I just thought, wow, wouldn't this be incredible if we don't need to go and hire someone? Because hiring even just one extra person, it comes with its issues. It's going to be a lot of money to hire an iOS dev. And 
or it's a lot of money or it's not a lot of money, but then I can't kind of just, I can't necessarily just say, cool, you handle that, goodbye. And so I was just like, I think I can do this. Let's see. That was kind of what it is. Let's see. Let's try it out. And so I, yeah, built the apps with a combination of Turbo, Swift and Kotlin and it worked. So I was like, these tools really helped me go faster. And then I added in like native elements and then slowly adding in more and more native elements over time. And honestly, when the apps first came out compared to now, it was very close to the PWA, but it was just the fact that people got it from the app store or the Play store. And now they're more different and we're bringing out more native functionality this year as well. But still, it was just that perception of, hey, this is just a bookmark. And we're like, no, it's not just a bookmark. It's a progressive <laughs> web app. <laughs> Didn't matter. <laughs> we, we've all had those conversations with customers. Like, just yeah. the home screen. Yeah, add to home screen. It's a bookmark. It's like it's different. <laughs> Trust us. Nadia, is really great talking to you today, hearing your perspective, your story with the StoryGraph and seeing the kinds of roles that you fill, especially learning just about more about your customer research process. Do you have any final things that you'd like to leave us with and where can people find you? It's been a real pleasure for me. I've had so much fun talking to you both. I could have continued. And I hope people found that useful. Sometimes I feel like I just go off on different tangents and things <laughs> like that. So I hope people find it useful. And people can find me on all the platforms, literally. <laughs> and my personal handle on all the platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky is at N-O-D-O-N-A-Y-O. If you have any questions about my journey, please reach out to me, respond. StoryGraph itself specifically, I run the Instagram, Twitter and Threads accounts and it's the StoryGraph. However, on Instagram and Threads, there's a period between the and StoryGraph. And we're also on Mastodon and we're on Blue Sky. I mean, Mastodon Blue Sky, we're not very active at all, but we're there. So if you message us, eventually we'll see it. But definitely on Twitter, Instagram and threads, I check those twice a day. So you'll get a timely response from me. Are there any upcoming events, conferences or like feature launches that you have in the horizon? First of all, I'm so sad because a few people approached me to submit to Rails World. And I think this would have, my Rails SaaS talk would have been a great one. And the cool thing about that talk is it will keep updating and evolving, at least at the end and the stats and as the product grows. But I'm going to be at a wedding, so I can't come. And it looks like it's going to be awesome. So I'm sad. Are you both going to be there? I'm going to be there. Jeremy, <laughs> I'm feeling left out. Oh, well, don't worry. I'm not going either. So <laughs> this is better for me. We don't have to feel as left out. So it would have been Mel's World, but no, I'm not. So right now, there is no technical event in my calendar, I don't think. But I'm going to see about being in town for... Ruby Conf in San Diego because that's where Rob and Toronto are. So that would be great. And then apart from that, nothing else. But Jeremy, you mentioned the two talks I put together. What's great is now I have those two new talks. I can give those a few new few places. Like I just gave the the Ruby mystery one, Brighton Ruby, just at the beginning of this month, at the end of June, actually. And it was great. That's awesome. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Nadia. Thank you so much. This was so fun. <laughs> <laughs>